the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Chris Williams is engineering today's program. Thank you very much, Chris. Well, today we've got quite a uh, lineup. As you know, the Supreme Court announced the final decisions that were pending. People waiting on the edge of their chairs for some important decisions that were announced uh, today. Uh, We're going to talk with Stephen Mosier. He's the author of Bully of Asia. We're going to talk about China's cheating and power-hungry aspirations and why the administration has taken some uh, actions to try to curb its uh, ability to steal intellectual property and uh, carry out its plan. We're also going to talk with A.J. Svoboda. He's the co-author of Redeeming How We Talk, Discover How Communications Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationships, and Changes Our Lives. And isn't this a timely subject, given the challenges we face as a republic today? We're also going to talk with uh, Jim Campbell, who is senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. We're going to talk about two Supreme Court cases, one involving the florist, Baron L. Stutzman. The, the Supreme Court, as you know, uh, on Monday announced that they are remanding that case back to the Supreme Court of the state of Washington. We'll find out some of the details of what that decision means for Baron L and how uh, it, we should interpret that. We're also going to talk about the Supreme Court, de- uh, court decision that was announced today uh, regarding NIFLA, and that is, of course, the, uh, the case having to do with whether or not pregnancy resource centers could be compelled in the state of Washington to advertise for the state promoting abortion. So that's coming up uh, in the five o'clock hour. And then we'll talk with Larry Gadbaugh, who is the CEO of First Image, uh, which is the the collection of pregnancy resource centers in the Portland area. We're going to talk about how this decision will impact their work here in our community. So Larry Gadbaugh will join us later in the program. And then I want to share with you a piece from David Limbaugh, in which he, uh, his headline read, let's find a balanced solution to immigration and stop the preening. And there's lots of preening going on. We'll uh, take a, a, a look, maybe pause just a bit and consider how we should move forward uh, in this uh, ongoing debate. Some of the developing stories, the South Carolina GOP gubernatorial runoff will be the focus of as voters are going to decide primary contests in seven states today. Democrats reportedly worry that calls to publicly shame Donald Trump's administration officials will hurt them at the polls and possibly the November midterm elections, not to mention threaten their safety. Both Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have warned against uh, that um, uh, that encouragement and the Justice Department refused House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez request for more information about the FBI's use of alleged informants in Spygate. You might recall that there was an ultimatum. So what happens now? That's the larger question. And the Trump administration has temporarily scaled back a key element of its zero tolerance immigration policy amid uh, backlash over the separation of children from their illegal immigrant families. And 17 states have now filed suit uh, with regard to that latter part, the separation of families, which the president issued an executive order regarding some days ago. And the identity of the congressional intern who cursed at the president on Capitol Hill last week 
And that intern, by the way, will not be fired, has maintained their job. I don't think you and I should try that, Chris, uh, cursing at anyone on the job and expect that we're going to have a job in the morning. Nonetheless, that is... um, Apparently the case. Well, the Supreme Court endorsed uh, endorsed rather the uh, Trump administration's conception of executive power with respect to immigration policy today. They upheld the president's ban on travelers from a number of nations deemed heightened security risks. Chief Justice John Roberts authored that decision for the 5-4 majority, writing that the travel ban, which was the third iteration that's been put before the courts, is squarely within the scope of presidential authority. The sole prerequisite set forth in federal law is that the president find that the entry of the covered aliens would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. The president has undoubtedly fulfilled that requirement here, Roberts wrote. So they didn't rule on whether or not this was a good policy, but whether or not the president, any executive, has the authority to make this kind of policy. Well, the current version of the president's travel ban issued in September as a presidential proclamation restricts travel from seven nations, six of which have a majority Muslim population out of 100 nations on the globe that are uh, Muslim majority. The high court took uh, uh, took it up in January after the president's initial travel ban implemented just weeks into his first term was blocked by multiple appeals courts around the country. Two months later, the administration issued a second version, which was also blocked. In her dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she sided with the critics of the ban, who have argued that the president's past comments about the dangers of immigration from majority Muslim nations prove the proclamation was motivated by anti-Muslim animus. Raising the question of what's said during a political campaign before one takes the oath of office, if that's relevant in making these kinds of decisions. She went on to say the repackaging does little to cleanse the policy of the appearance of discrimination that the president's words have created. Based on the evidence in the record, a reasonable observer would conclude that the proclamation was motivated by anti-Muslim animus. Now, supporters of the president have pointed out that we're talking about six nations out of Uh, dozens of uh, majority Muslim nations, and the ban is only temporary uh, once a system of identifying or uh, cooperating with the U.S. intelligence uh, agencies has been resolved. Uh, As I mentioned, 17 states have filed suit against the president's immigration policies over family separations. Attorneys generals from 17 states in the District of Columbia sued uh, the president today over its policy of separating families who cross the U.S.-Mexico border illegally. I'm not sure if this is a moot point since the executive order put an end to that policy, but the lawsuit filed in federal court in Seattle is the first legal challenge by states over the practice. The states which joined the lawsuit are California, Delaware, Illinois, Iowa, Iowa, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington. All have Democratic attorney generals. The administration's practice of separating families is cruel, plain, and simple. The New Jersey attorney general uh, said in an emailed statement, every day it seems like the administration is issuing new contradictory policies and relying on new contradictory justifications, but we can't forget the lives of real people hang in the balance. Again, Trump signed a, an executive order last week that was designed to end the separations under his zero-tolerance policy, which prosecutes uh, all adults who come into the country illegally. However, the lawsuit claims the order is riddled with caveats and fails to reunite parents and children's uh, children rather who have already been torn apart. They accuse the administration of denying parents and children due process, denying the immigrants, many of whom are fleeing gang violence in Central America, their right to seek asylum and being arbitrary in 
applying the policy. Well, over the weekend, the administration said that 2,053 separated minors were being uh, kept in facilities run by the Department of Health and Human Services as of June 20th. A fact sheet released by the administration said that 522 separated children had been reunited with their parents or guardians. A U.S. judge in San Diego uh, has already considered whether to issue a nationwide injunction sought by the American Civil Liberties Union that would order the administration to reunite the separated children with their parents. And one of the challenges we learned about in this whole process is that the fact that a child is accompanied by an adult may not mean that adult is a parent and determining whether or not that is in fact the case because sex trafficking is also an issue has uh, uh, resulted in at least some delay in that process. All right, 15 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Stephen Mosier. He's the author of Bully of Asia. We're going to talk about China's cheating and power-hungry aspirations, as he put it. So why is the administration blocking their capacity to engage in certain kinds of trade? We'll explain in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, following reports from various media outlets on Monday that the U.S. is going to further crack down on China's technology, technology rather, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin took to Twitter to clarify what the administration's moves will be. There were various news reports that Trump would place new curbs on Chinese investment in U.S. technology firms, would block additional technology exports to Beijing as well. Well, according to the Wall Street Journal, initiatives were designed to prevent Beijing from moving ahead with plans outlined in its Made in China 2025 report to become a global leader in 10 broad areas of technology. Well, Treasury Department, um, uh, the Treasury Department is drafting rules that would block firms with 25% or more Chinese ownership from buying companies that are involved in industrially significant technology. While the National Security Council and the Commerce Department are putting together plans for enhanced export controls to prevent these technologies from being shipped to China. Well, here to explain uh, what this means is the author of Bully of Asia. He uh, wrote a piece for Fox News, in fact, that uh, points out that China cheats. And this explains what's behind the, uh, the moves on the part of the administration. Uh, my guest, Stephen Mosier, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Georgine. Well, first of all, let's talk about the notion that China cheats and what motivated the administration to move forward with these, uh, these plans. Well, you know, I've been watching China for a long time. I was the first American social scientist on the ground in China in 1979. So I, by 2018, I now have about 39 years of China watching experience. And the Chinese Communist Party does not play by the rules. The Chinese Communist Party, of course, used brute force to seize power in 1949 and is really waging a kind of unrestricted economic warfare against the United States with the idea of replacing the United States as the dominant power on the planet. Now, if China were a free market democracy, that wouldn't be such a frightening prospect, right? I mean, uh, 100 years ago, Great Britain passed the baton to the United States when we surpassed it in total economic might. And it was a peaceful transfer of global supremacy. Uh, The transfer to China would be a very different thing because China wants to turn the world upside down and, and make it come to resemble China which is the very opposite of a free market democracy. So China really treats in every way it possibly can. I mean, look, if you can imagine a way to to cheat on trade or on technology transfer or on information gathering or on cyber espionage, 
If you can imagine a way to do that, China is already doing it and has actually a government-funded, a government-staffed program to do exactly that. So it really is economic warfare across all domains. Um, Peter Navarro, who is the president's trade advisor, just reduced, uh, re- re- released a 36-page report about uh, uh, China's economic aggression against the United States. I can summarize that report in two words. China cheats. Huh. One of the things that you write in the, the piece for Fox News is that the economic melees of the previous administration convinced many in Beijing that America's best days were behind it. And what was once clandestine in terms of their effort to become a super economic power has now uh, come out into the light because of that belief that the United States is uh, pretty much history. Yeah, and, and that's really the, the most sobering uh, fact that I can imagine coming out of this whole situation uh, we know that China is building up its economic might, its military might. It's making aggressive claims in the South China Sea, East China Sea, towards India, et cetera, et cetera. But what is really sobering to me is the fact that for about 25 years, China hid its capabilities. It bided its time. Deng Xiaoping told the Chinese leadership uh, 40 years ago, we need to be careful not to alarm the United States. We need to let not let them know that we're catching up to them, that we will one day surpass them because they might try to, to stymie our advance. And so he said, bide your time and hide your capabilities. Well, for the last five years, President for Life, Xi Jinping, and he'll be in power forever as long as he's got a beating heart in his chest, he will be in power. He's abandoned that rule. He is not biding his time. He's not hiding his capabilities. He's open about wanting to achieve his China dream. And his China dream is a dream not just of global, uh, rather regional uh, dominance, but also of global dominance as well. And the fact that he's come out from behind the curtain, the fact that he's now open about his global ambitions, tells us that he believes, the Chinese leadership believes, that they've already basically won the battle, and now it's just a matter of mopping up the rest of the opposition, collecting the rest of American technology, surpassing the United States in key areas by by 2025. And then by 2035, their plan is to be uh, the globally dominant power. And, you know, for a long time, I thought um, that they were probably right. I thought that that Obama seemed more interested in managing the American decline than he was interested in restoring the American economy and restoring America's greatness. I have become much more optimistic, however, over the last year and a half, because we now have a president who understands that 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 all, all, uh, all, all of our capabilities ultimately come from the economy, and that if we have a strong economy, a robust economy, uh, everything follows from that. And and we're we've we've gone a long way in the last. 500 yeah. days. Yeah. Now, um, you point out in the, the article that how China cheats, and I want to ask you to give us some examples in a moment, but you point out that there's new evidence of China's no holds bar economic war against the United States. It's cheating on trade, the theft of uh, U.S. intellectual property, uh, and these are the things that have motivated the administration to address uh, those very things. Give us some examples of how China cheats and why we should be very concerned about, uh, about how they do it and whether or not we permit it. Well, here, here's a Here's the uh, it's a long list, but let me summarize. Uh, China cheats by protecting its market from American imports, right? It has high tariffs, which you can see, but it has also tricky non-tariff barriers, and it constantly changes regulations 
If, if an American uh, computer manufacturer were to go into China, it would have to completely remanufacture its computers in order to comply with China's shifting regulations. So effectively, that keeps our stuff out of China. Uh, it cheats by subsidizing uh, the exports of its national champions. These are state-owned enterprises, okay? So American companies, we have to understand, American companies can compete with any companies around the world, uh, but they're not competing in China with Chinese privately owned companies. The American companies are forced to try to compete with the Chinese party state, what I call China Incorporated. And that's an unfair competition because the state controls everything, right? It controls access to market. It controls the transfer of technology. You can't compete with a national government. So our companies need help. Um, China also cheats by trying to lock up resources. You know, they, they go to poor countries like Bolivia and they say, uh, let us loan you $300 million and, and we will then own your copper mines. But all the copper, all the copper that we extract from the earth has to go to China to fuel China's industrial machine. And basically, China wants to move all of the world's industry inside its borders and then have the rest of the world as a kind of plantation, which provides raw materials on the one hand and provides consumers for China's manufactured products on the other. Uh, that's not a world that, that I particularly want to live in. Um, it subsidizes manufacturing with cheap loans and cheap energy. It pays no attention to environmental health and safety standards. I mean, the, the, the rate of worker injury and death in China is, is horribly high. And, of course, that keeps manufacturing costs down when you don't have to worry about injuring or killing employees. Uh, you can manufacture things cheaply. Uh, and, of course, we all know about the cyber espionage, the, the, the theft of intellectual property. The FBI estimates that China steals $600 billion a year in intellectual property from the United States. Let that sink in. $600 billion a year. That's a better part of a trillion dollars. And if you combine that with the $400-plus billion in trade surplus that they run with us, they're transferring a trillion dollars in wealth every year from the United States to China. Uh, by theft. And we simply cannot allow that to continue. Well, I'll ask the question that you close your article with, and that is there time to stop the criminal enterprise, that is China Inc., from stealing its way to the top? And is this a partisan issue? Well, it shouldn't be a partisan issue. I mean, if you're concerned about the, the future of America, if you're concerned about what kind of country and what kind of world your children and grandchildren will live in, uh, we, we need to, to, to turn this around now. And, and as I said, for the first time in a long time, I'm hopeful that we can do that. You know, President Trump is being wrongly accused of trying to start a trade war with China. That's not what he's doing. President Trump is trying to end the trade war that China has been carrying out against us for the last 15 years. China has been in a trade war with us. We just haven't acknowledged it. Mm -hmm. Now we finally have a president who says enough is enough. We're in the 15th round of a championship bout for basically economic champion of the world. We've been pummeled. We've been beaten to a bloody pulp for the first 14 rounds. And finally, we have a president who says enough is enough. We're going to fight back. We should support him in this effort. Uh, there will be some short term pain, maybe ups and downs. But the long term advantages, benefits from this will be enormous for America and for the world at large. Well, I thank you so much for talking with us today. Again, our guest is Stephen Mosier. He's the author of Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream is the New Threat to World Order, published by Regnery. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk with A.J. Svoboda. He's the co-author of Redeeming How We Talk. 
Oh, Lord, do we need help in that area? Discover how communication fuels our growth, shapes our relationships, and changes our lives. In fact, the scripture says life and death is in the power of the tongue. We'll be back to talk with A.J. Svoboda in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We all crave connection. In fact, Lindsay Nobles points out that ironically, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about or praying about how our words and our other conversational tools work to draw us close to one another or to God. We're all familiar with the psalm that pleads, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Redeeming how we talk breaks down how to do just that. We're talking about the new book uh, written by my guest and his co-author titled Redeeming How We Talk. Discover how communication fuels our growth, shapes our relationships, and changes our lives. We need to talk more. We need to talk better. Uh, Redeeming How We Talk uh, explores what the Bible has to say about that central aspect of life in relationships, conversation. Uh, There's um, not a whole lot of that kind of quality going on in our culture right about now, so we would do well to set an example. The scriptures show us that words have remarkable power to create, to bless, to encourage, to forgive, and of course there's the other side as well. Imagine how we as Christians could spark change in our families, our churches, and even in our communities if we learn to use words like Jesus did, weaving together theology, history, and philosophy. My guest, uh, A.J. Svoboda, and his co-author, Ken um, Weistma, Uh, They help us reclaim the holiness of human speech and the relevance of meaningful conversation in our culture today. Well, A.J. Svoboda is a professor, author, and pastor of Theophilus in urban Portland. He is the lead mentor of a Doctor of Ministry program on the Holy Spirit and the leadership at Fuller Seminary and teaches theology, biblical studies, and Christian history at a number of other universities and Bible colleges. He's the director of Blessed Earth Northwest, an organization focusing on creation care issues and Sabbath in the Pacific Northwest. He also serves as the executive director of the Seminary Stewardship Alliance. He and his wife, uh, Quinn, they live with their son, Elliot, right here in our community. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you. Georgine, it's always a joy uh, joy to hear from you. Well, there, there uh, is a lot of talk these days, but not much emphasis on the art of conversation and the value of how we use our words. This book is perhaps more timely than you imagined as we find ourselves in something of a cultural uh, crisis in terms of how we uh, communicate and relate to one another. Had you anticipated that? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we knew, Ken, Ken Weitzman and myself, when we wrote this book, we knew that something needed to be addressed. In fact, I, a, a real kind of turning point for me was uh, after um, the, the, the election when Donald Trump uh, became our president. And what, what we observed and what I particularly observed in the church that I pastor here in Portland was um, immediately after that election, a complete breakdown in communication uh, between people, both of different political persuasions, but simultaneously between different generations. And we noticed that uh, kids were no longer talking to their parents and Democrats are no longer talking to Republicans. And all of a sudden we just start resorting to talking about the weather. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, that's a real problem. If we can't be people that know how to talk to people on the other side, boy, we're we're in a bit of a crisis. Uh, we're talking about um, our culture uh, today, and it perhaps predates the, the election, but it certainly has come to a, 
uh, to a head in these last uh, 12, 15 months. Uh, but you write about uh, the culture um, and the transformative and redemptive conversation um, that we are supposed to be engaged in and has fallen victim to what has become popularized in the highly charged political climate. Talk a little bit about the, the realities of our culture and how that is influencing how we as believers mm. communicate rather than the other way around. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a friend who uh, years ago founded a, a rummage sale, a set of uh, of letters that civil uh, somebody who was fighting in the Civil War was writing to their friend. And, and these pages, I mean, they were it's like 20 pages front and back of this eloquently written communication. And it was just about how are you doing? I mean, it was nothing. It wasn't about anything really important. And essentially what, what we're observing in our culture right now is a complete and utter rejection of thoughtful dialogue with uh, tweets and Facebook updates and um, uh, essentially pithy uh, cliches. We live cliche to cliche, and we have completely lost uh, the ability to communicate in depth and to communicate well to people, uh, even that we love uh, the closest. I mean, even I've observed just fascinatingly, yeah, even after the election, I mean, divorces that are taking place because there's political discourse that's different within a marriage I mean, we just we don't even we just don't even know how to talk with substance anymore. Mm, mm. Um, one of the things that we are subject to is information overload and invitations to speak, whether mm. that's in print or using our voices without much emphasis on wisdom, discernment, insight. Uh, we're just encouraged to sort of vomit out whatever <laughs> happens yep. to occur to us. How important is the overload of information, which gives us the feeling that we might know more or be wiser than we actually are, impact mm -hmm. the way we relate to one another? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say I think I'd answer on two two levels. Uh, the first the first would be I've observed as a participant on Twitter, um, I've observed that as a pastor and as a Christian leader, when I don't speak up on some social justice issue that's hot today, um, I'm uh, interestingly enough, considered to be complicit with the problem. And for the first time in history, um, mm. I think silence has been interpreted as injustice. And for the Christian, that's very problematic because the way that we work our stuff out is in the presence of God, uh, that we go to God and we know how to pray and be quiet and silent, and that we don't often act, react right away. Sometimes we stop and get in the presence of Jesus. It's very problematic when silence and reflection are considered parts of the problem. Uh, the second thing that I would say is that um, the kind of great quote that I heard years ago, I think it was James Sire or Dallas Willard, somebody who said that uh, we are overwhelmed with information, but simultaneously we are drowning in information, but parched for transformation. Mm. And his point was, we are just, we are overwhelmed with information. It's just not doing anything to actually change our lives. And that that's, I, I can tell as an older millennial that that's taking place among me and the people that are my age, is we know everything in the world, but we are increasingly people who have no character. Mm. What did God intend when he gave us speech? Maybe we need to, to start there. Uh, Lord, you've given me this tremendous capacity to communicate. What is your uh, what is your intention? What is my purpose in using that gift? Yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, God, words are God's invention. I mean, God spoke the world into existence. 
Uh, one of my favorite verses in, in Genesis that God spoke everything and also the stars. John Wesley once said that it was almost as though the, the rest of the universe was an afterthought. And God does this just with his words. I mean, just language is God's creation. Adam and Eve uh, spoke. Uh, and of course, words were also the, what were used by, uh, by uh, the serpent to deceive Adam and Eve. So there's, there's a sense in which Genesis speaks about the fact that words have creation, creative power, but destructive power as well. And we find even in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis that God uh, intentionally, while he gives us words, God also disrupts words. We find at the Tower of Babel that it was God who confused the languages. Uh, you know, that could take place today if we had some electrical blip and no longer communicated via Internet. That'd be similar to the story of Babel. All of us would go our other ways. We would not have talked to each other. Um, but at the end of the day, words have, the scriptures say, tremendous power to yeah. give life and simultaneously capacity to destroy. You know, it's interesting, as you described what happened at the Tower of Babel, it's as if that has happened to us. We are speaking the same language. We share, in, in, at least in part, some common experience, and yet we lack understanding, or at least a mm. willingness to attempt to understand one another. Uh, and it's, a, it's an unsavory combination. Lots of information, lots of opportunity to speak, very little um, uh, wisdom in that whole process. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about a really important book, I think, at this time in particular, although I suppose uh, studying and, and determining what God intends for us, redeeming how we talk, has always been important. The subtitle of the book, Discover How Communication Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationships, and Changes Our Lives, and for that matter, the lives of others. We'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 47 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing a conversation with A.J. Svoboda, who has uh, co-authored the book titled Redeeming How We Talk, Discover How Communication Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationships, and Changes our lives. Well, let's t let's start sort of at the beginning. Um, we live in a very complicated age, uh, and the world of communication can be overwhelming. How do we begin to center our words and our speech in a way that's honoring to God and is edifying to the people we uh, we come in contact, whether that's family members, coworkers, neighbors, friends, and so on? Hey, Georgine, I'm having a hard time hearing you. The sound is is uh, the the music is blaring, and I can't hear you. Forgive me. Okay. Uh, are you still hearing there it? There we go. Perfect. Okay. Now okay. I can hear you. Perfect. I don't know if you heard the question, but I was just uh, pointing out that we live in a very complicated age. And how do we begin to center our words and speech uh, so that they're edifying uh, and mm. honoring to God? Where do we start? Yeah, what, what a great question. Well, I, you know, when I when I read um, when I read uh, the New Testament, in particular, uh, when I read the book of James, I find this fascinating little little theme of, of, of thought, and that is that... Um, that if we if we don't know how to love and talk to people that we can see, then we're not going to know how to be able to talk to a God that we can't. Um, mm. And and I wonder I wonder a, a little bit if there's a as, if there's a bit of a, a reflection or a, a connection between our prayer life and our ability to talk to people. And I I do I have wondered if maybe the best way that we can learn to talk to people is first learning how to listen to God, because if we don't have the capacity to listen to God, it's going to be really hard for us to be able to practice that with people that we can see within our, in our life. So I want to, in a very weird way, I almost want to sidestep that question by saying um, we need to learn to talk to God first. And if, if we can do that okay, 
then we probably can deal with people. If we're not centered in our relationship with Jesus, then it's going to be really hard to be centered in our relationship with people. Mm, that's uh, so true. We live in, a, in an age when communication is uh, highly depersonalized as well. We can get on Facebook or Twitter or wh- wherever yeah. we're communicating, and somehow we're a different person because we're not actually looking into the face of someone else. People can be emboldened, say things they would never say uh, if they were in the company of the, the people that they're communicating with. Um, what do you say about the, the depersonalized aspect of communication that has had an impact on how we relate to one another when we are face-to-face? Yeah, well, I've, I've noticed in my own life, uh, I'll be personal with you on the air here, I've noticed in my 15 years of marriage that I get in more arguments uh, driving in the car than any other time during during my, anywhere else with my wife. And I, it's not that we argue. In fact, we argue very little, but I've noticed that it's usually when we're driving. And of course, when you're driving, you're not looking at each other. Um, and any sociologist and social scientist would tell you that uh, something like 85% of all communication is body language and facial expressions. And when you remove that aspect from communication, you disembody the way God intended communication to be made. Um, when we can't see each other's faces, when we don't see each other's body language, we almost always assume that something is wrong, which is why sarcasm over emails never works, mm-hmm. because you just can't see the person's face. We argue in the book that ultimately we need to return to kind of a new approach to conversation that includes the body, embodied conversation. And without doing that, we're just going to find ourselves continuously um, misinterpreting and uh, misreading one another. And it's going to continue to lead to the downfall of our communication. One of the things that you write about is the fact that hard conversations are one of the forgotten arts of he- of a healthy Christian living. And it's critical to open ourselves up to difficult conversations. Now, there's a lot to talk about that can be difficult these days, but it's an art form that is largely lost, at least if we're going to have healthy, constructive conversations. Talk a little bit about why that's important and how mm. we can engage one another when we're talking about difficult things, which may be, for example, disagreements on, on issues mm. of our day. Well, character is not developed uh, in, in, in a vacuum. Character is developed by encountering really difficult things. Um, I years ago heard about this uh, phenomenon in the, in the Arizona desert where they, the University of Arizona had built this huge thing called the biosphere. And the biosphere, they spent billions of dollars on this, this huge in, sort of building that was made of glass but was mm-hmm. kind of a, a biodome. And what they found was these trees – uh, were growing in the biodome, and all of a sudden they'd get to a certain point and they would just fall over, and they couldn't figure out why these trees were dying. And they thought, was there something wrong with the soil? With the, what, what was wrong? And it turns out these trees, they would grow up and they would just fall over because there was no wind. They had no root system. Uh, when wind blew through the – wind is what makes a tree strong. You can't have a, str- a strong tree without wind. Ultimately, human beings grow up to be really, really, really weak people because they've never had opposition. They've had, never had difficult things happen. They've never had challenges. I think that those kinds of things, those difficult conversations, are what build our character. That's what makes us stronger people. Um, when, when there is no wind, conversational wind, when there is no conversational difficulty, we just basically shun anybody that's different than ourselves. We need to teach our kids at a very young age how to have hard conversations. And that means having hard, difficult things happen at a very young age. Now, what are some of the patterns or habits uh, that you've adopted in your own life to help you uh, with healthy communication? Well, I would say, number one, uh, when you're eating a meal with somebody uh, that's a human being, to put your phone down and treat the person in front of you like they're made in the image of God. 
Um, put, put your phone down and do it more because the person in front of you is created by an almighty God who is made to sit in front of you and have a conversation. I'd say second thing would be um, do everything in the world that you can do to replace disembodied conversations. So Facebook, Twitter, text, and, and actually get back into each other's lives. And I would say the third thing, understand that our technological addiction actually affects other people. Um, when I was a kid, I was raised by a dad who's a doctor, a phenomenal doctor. But I remember as a kid, my dad always was on call. And when I was a kid, my favorite thing to do with my dad was to go to Disneyland and go fishing. And it turns out both those things had one thing in common. My dad was not on call when we went fishing or went to Disneyland. Mm. Uh, last year, I took my son for the first time to Disneyland, and we were standing in line for Wild Mr. Wild Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And there was this little kid in front of us who was about six years old, pulling on his dad's shirt and saying "Dad, Dad, Dad," trying to get his attention. And I watched for nearly one and a half, two minutes, as this dad ignored his son as he was answering emails on his phone. We do not understand what we are teaching our kids. We are teaching our kids that we're in the room, but we're not really in the room, that we're somewhere else. And if we think that doesn't affect people, we're not paying attention. Mm. Now, some of us don't don't have good examples we can look to to guide us in how to communicate. But the second part of your book focuses on the words of God, the mechanics of hearing one another, the wisdom and words, um, what uh, what godly speech is to help help us if we don't see a, a model elsewhere. Help us to to see what what is it that we're aspiring to? What are examples mm. of, of where we should go? Give us some examples <laughs> yeah. on on uh, on some of the words of God that will help us. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't know. I don't know if there is a better model, frankly, than Jesus, who was the ultimate conversationalist. Uh, Jesus, we find from reading the Gospels that Jesus is always talking to people that he disagreed with. He is always loving people he disagreed with. Jesus is always encountering people and having conversations with people that were fundamentally different than he was. The very fact, by the way, that of the 12 disciples, Jesus, of course, had 12 disciples that are named. Uh, It's fascinating to me that Jesus took a guy named Matthew, the tax collector, who was by his very name, Matthew, the tax collector. He worked for the Roman government. He was a big government guy. We call him a Democrat. And Jesus also took a guy named Simon the Zealot, who was an anti-government guy, wanted Rome to fall. We call him a libertarian or attack a, a, a Tea Party guy. And Jesus took both of them, and he said, your politics are really cute. Why don't you come and follow me? <laughs> and he said to both of them that their politics were not the ultimate goal. The goal was to follow Jesus. And what's remarkable is Jesus even took enemies and made them friends. There is no greater conversational hero that we should look to as Christians other than Jesus, who was willing to embrace and love and even critique and speak truth to um, every individual that he came in contact with. There is no greater model than Jesus himself, who was, by the way, the Word of God. Hmm. You have a chapter about the unity of the church, and you use the term conversational gentrification. Explain what that is and the implications Hmm. of it in the church. Yeah, uh, gentrification, at least in a place like Portland where we live, is the process of the urban cores basically being whitewashed, as it were, uh, sanitized to people of color, which is something that's an atrocious uh, thing that's happening in a lot of major cities. Uh, In the book, we talk about the reality that in conversational sense, we gentrify people out of our life that we don't want to have to engage with. Um, And the difficult thing is... uh, the easiest thing, the easiest thing is to is to sanitize our life of people that are different than ourselves. Um, the only problem is Jesus never lived that way. Uh, Jesus engaged every socioeconomic, every racial category one could imagine. 
And that does his conversation did not apply that imply that he agreed with them. We assume that if we're in conversation with somebody, we have to agree with them. And Jesus didn't do that. That's so important for the church. We do just because we serve and love and converse with somebody has never once implied in the history of Christianity that we agree. Jesus washed the feet of his greatest enemy, Judas, on the night before his death. Jesus washed the feet of his enemy. That should be a model for us for for welcoming and embracing the person who's fundamentally different than we are. What a tremendous example we have. And this is really a, a very timely book that I think all generations will benefit by because we have some unique challenges. And if we can model what Christ did in, in using his voice um, uh, while he was here with us on earth, I think we will do well to, to have a real impact mm-hmm. on the culture. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, Georgine, thanks for having me in grace and peace. Have a great rest Thank of your day. You. Thank you very much. Again, A.J. Svoboda, along with his um, uh, co-author, Um, Ken Weitzma. The book is titled Redeeming How We Talk, Discover How Communication Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationships, and Changes Our Lives. The book is published by Moody. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up next. When we return, we'll talk with uh, Senior Counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, Jim Campbell. He uh, is going to talk with us about the recent decision by the Supreme Court in the Baronel Stutzman case, as well as the NIFLA case. We'll explain what both of those are, but they have to do with the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court sent the case of floral artist Baronel Stutzman back to the Washington Supreme Court on Monday after vacating that court's decision and instructing the court to reconsider her lawsuit in light of the recent decision in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Now, in that case, you'll recall, the court reversed Colorado's decision to punish the cake artist, Jack Phillips, for living and working consistently with his religious beliefs about marriage, just as Stutzman has also been at least trying to do while under legal attack by the Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson and the ACLU. There's a great deal at stake here. Well, the pair, the two, I should say, the organization and the man, they sued Stutzman after she declined because of her faith to design custom floral arrangements celebrating the same-sex wedding of a customer she'd served for nearly 10 years. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom attorneys represented both Stutzman and Phillips, and here to talk with us about that case and later about NIFLA, which we'll explain, is um, uh, my guest. Jim, uh, Jim Campbell, Senior Counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to talk to you about these important cases. Well, it's good to talk to you, especially because uh, the, the outcome was, was uh, favorable. And I think for a lot of observers, they weren't quite sure what to think when the Supreme Court didn't rule specifically on Baronel Stutzman's case, but remanded it back to the Washington Supreme Court. So explain what that means and whether or not it's favorable to Baronella. So this, I think what's really important to emphasize is this is very standard. This is what the court does. If the court has uh, similar cases, which oftentimes it will have similar cases that come up at the same time, uh, it will decide one of them and then it will send the other one back down for the lower courts to reevaluate in light of what the court said in the similar case. So this is this is a great development. Essentially, what we always have to keep in mind is that there was a bad decision against Baronel Stutzman that the Supreme Court has now wiped away, wiped away, and they've given her uh, a fresh start. 
um, before the Washington Supreme Court. And so it's a great development. Uh, we're hopeful that ultimately we can go back down and either convince the Washington Supreme Court to rule for us, or if, if we're unable to do that, that we'll come right back up to the U.S. Supreme Court and try to uh, get them to rule for us then. And one of the concerns that many of us observing have had is the fact that Baronell uh, stands to lose virtually everything if she uh, fails to win in this challenge. Uh, this prolongs a final decision. How does that how does she fare uh, with now the prolonged um, the prospect of now the Supreme Court taking it up again and a final resolution being again far off? Yeah, I, I mean, it's difficult. There's there's no way around it. Whenever you're you're tied up in litigation, especially when you have the uncertainty of a lawsuit that threatens everything you own, not just your business, but your personal savings and everything her and her husband have worked for. So uh, it is difficult, but certainly it's it's uh, it's encouraging to know that the Supreme Court has breathed new life into her case and that she has an opportunity to go back down and hopefully convince the Washington Supreme Court that now they should come to a different conclusion and uphold her freedom to live and work consistent with her beliefs. Yeah, hopefully informed by the Supreme Court's decision. Now, the court denounced government hostility toward the religious beliefs of, about marriage held by creative professionals. And in the case of Jack Phillips, um, making it clear that uh, the way this, the the state handled his uh, his case um, violated the law. Now, explain a little bit about Baronell and her relationship with the Attorney General in Washington, and uh, explain some of the similarities between what we became familiar with in the case of Jack Phillips, but may be less familiar with when it comes to Baronell Stutzman. Sure. So, uh, what to, to go back to the beginning? You know, Baronelle yeah. had, had, had this customer, uh, Rob Ingersoll, a, a gentleman that she designed floral arrangements for for nearly a decade. She knew he was in a same-sex relationship. It never mattered to her. She was happy to serve him. Um, but finally, one day when he came with a request to design the flowers for his same-sex wedding. That was one thing that she couldn't do because of her religious beliefs about marriage. And so she took his hand. She expressed her regard for him, but told him that because of her relationship with Jesus, this was one thing that she wasn't able to do. So uh, she gave him the names of three other florists that could do good work for him. And they hugged and they parted and, you know, she thought it was over. And then at that point, the state learns about this through social media and the state steps in and on its own accord files a lawsuit against her. And not only files a lawsuit against her, but files a lawsuit and sues her in her personal capacity. Again, that puts her at risk to lose everything, not just her business, but everything she ever worked for in her life and everything that her and her husband own personally. So that right there is evidence that the you know the state is really out to get her. But moreover, what we've seen is late last year, um, there was a Seattle coffee shop where the owner, and this is captured on video and it's easy to find the footage of it online, uh, the owner uh, drove out and profanely berated a group of Christians who were in the shop, and he drove them out and discriminated against them. But there wasn't a lawsuit filed by the Washington State Attorney General in that case. So what is the reason for this uh, this unequal treatment between two sets of people. Well, I, I, I submit to, to the court and, and we would submit to, to anyone that would listen that the difference is that the attorney general is hostile to what Baronel believes, uh, and that's why he's treating her worse than, than others. Hmm. It's also uh, true that uh, he had offered to, um, uh, to, 
I guess, step away from the case uh, if she were to pay two thousand one dollars and renounce her faith and and use her artistic ability to serve those with whom she uh, she would disagree on the subject of marriage and made that public. Uh, again, illustrating the hostility that uh, the attorney general had toward her because of her uh, Christian faith. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. Uh, what, what the attorney general showed uh, at that point in time is that he didn't understand um, what this was about in terms of uh, from Baronell's perspective. This is about Baronell's freedom. This is about Baronell's faith. This wasn't about money, and so he offered to settle the case for a couple thousand dollars if she would give up her uh, freedom to live and work consistent with her beliefs. But that's not what Baronell's interested in. She is interested in uh, the rights and the freedoms that are guaranteed to her under the First Amendment of the Constitution, and she simply wants to live and work consistent with her beliefs about marriage. What can we um, at least speculate about regarding the Washington Supreme Court. They had ruled at one point that she would have to pay penalties and attorney's fees um, for uh, declining to design custom floral arrangements celebrating a same-sex ceremony. Are they disposed to respond favorably? And I, I realize this is somewhat speculative, but are they disposed to um, to take to heart what the Supreme Court has already ruled in the, the cake uh, shop case And are you optimistic that she is ultimately going to get a decision that would protect her freedom to exercise her faith and uh, to use her artistic talent to arrange flowers? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to say. We're certainly hopeful that that's what will happen, but... um... But it remains to be seen. Uh, of course, when we were before the Washington Supreme Court before, um, we we lost seven to nothing. So uh, that doesn't bode particularly well for us. But having said that, uh, we remain uh, op- optimistic that the court will take a look at Baronell's case and take a look at what the Supreme Court said in Jack Phillips's case, and hopefully they will come to the same conclusion that the Supreme Court did there when they rule in Arlene's in Arlene's flowers this time around. If they fail to do so, do you have the option of referring it back to the Supreme Court? Yes, we can. We can take the case right back up to the Supreme Court and ask them to hear it again. And this has been a five-year um, uh, process for the Washington floral artist, Baronelle Stutzman, so we certainly can uh, pray that this will be resolved favorably and she can uh, maintain her uh, her livelihood as well as her life because, as you pointed out, they're looking at assets far beyond her business. Now, the Supreme Court also ruled in another case, um, uh, NIFLA. We're going to talk about that when we come back from the break. But this is an important case related to pregnancy resource centers in the uh, state of California, but certainly has broader implications for PRCs in other parts of the country as well. If you'll stay with us, we'll uh, we'll, uh, bring that up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking uh, this afternoon with Jim Campbell, Senior Counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Supreme Court ruled 5 to 4 that crisis pregnancy centers cannot be forced to promote abortions. The opinion was authored by Justice Thomas in favor of National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, or NIFLA, versus Becerra, one of four cases brought by crisis pregnancy centers which challenged a California law as a violation of the First Amendment. Justice Kennedy filed a concurring opinion joined by Roberts, Alito, and Gorsuch. Well, one of the four cases before the court involved the same 
um, uh, the same law. The Supreme Court reviewed the California Reproductive Fact Act, which compelled pro-life crisis pregnancy centers to post notices in their physical clinics, printed material and online, as well as billboards. Well, the court ruled in this case. And uh, once again, we continue our conversation with senior counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, Jim Campbell. Now, this um, was certainly a victory for crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, explain what the Supreme Court ruled today, five to four. Sure. So the state of California enacted this law that essentially told licensed pregnancy, pro-life pregnancy centers that they had to point the way to abortion. They had to advertise for abortion and tell pregnant women where they could go, where what number they could call if they were, were looking um, to access an abortion. Now, of course, let's take a step back. These are pro-life pregnancy centers. Their very purpose is to encourage pregnant women to keep their, to keep their children, and they do so through uh, counseling, encouragement, tangible resources, and things of that nature. So for the government to come in and to require these organizations to point the way to an abortion is to require them to do exactly uh, the opposite of what they exist to do. The Supreme Court saw that today. They saw through this law and they said uh, very clearly that the government cannot force people to speak messages, to say things uh, that violate their convictions, particularly when you're dealing with a, a, a divisive uh, inherently moral question like abortion. So it was a great day for uh, our uh, pregnancy center clients. It was a great day with the court affirming the freedom that we all have to decline to speak messages that we don't uh, we don't want to say. Now, one might assume if you're receiving federal funny or uh, money rather or money from uh, the state that then you can be compelled to do certain things as a, the string being attached. But pregnancy resource centers, for the most part, receive absolutely no public money. They're not uh, they're not overseen by the state in terms of uh, funding. These are private organizations that are motivated, as you pointed out a moment ago, they're motivated by their their Christian faith. Uh, that's that's exactly right. These are nonprofit groups. Uh, these are groups, most of which are are faith based groups, and they exist uh, for the purpose of encouraging women to choose life. Uh, and they do so through love, support, community, and things of that nature. And thankfully, the Supreme Court saw what California was doing. It was trying to impose a burden on these these groups in particular because it doesn't like what they're doing. It doesn't like their mission. It doesn't like their message. And so it's trying. The state was trying to interject its own pro-abortion message into the centers, and thankfully the Supreme Court said no today. Now, California passed a law that would have required this, but there have been other efforts. In fact, here in the state of Oregon, there have been efforts to uh, impose similar strictures on pregnancy resource centers. Uh, Was the Supreme Court's decision definitive? Will this put an end to efforts elsewhere across the country to try to impose this kind of requirement on uh, resource centers across the country? Or is this so narrow that it only applies to California and we should expect to see efforts uh, elsewhere to continue? Well, I I think that's a good question. The Supreme Court was pretty clear, um, but as always, when the Supreme Court decides a a case, it's confined to that case. In other words, it it only deals with laws that are that are that are like it or that are very very similar. And so, we will have to continue to argue in other states that have 
laws that are similar but different enough. Uh, but we do think the Supreme Court has provided pretty clear guidance on this particular issue and that it will ultimately lead to most of the existing laws like this being struck down. But at the end of the day, uh, we have to continue to litigate those cases and it remains to be seen exactly what the courts will do. But again, we're optimistic because the court's decision today was a very strong one in favor of the pro-life centers. One observer wrote that this case will also have an impact on laws that seek to ban counsel for unwanted same-sex attractions, behaviors, and identity. The opinion explicitly adopts the argument uh, that professional speech cannot be exempted as some new category of speech. Uh, Would you agree that this is likely to have some impact or influence on future cases involving uh, the speech and other uh, cases involving uh, counselors? Well, I think that the case will have an impact on any case involving what the, what we consider to be professionals. So whether that's doctors, lawyers, counselors, or the dozens of other folks that we consider to be in a in a profession, the Supreme Court made it clear today that they're not subject to lesser constitutional protections. That professionals are entitled to the full. Uh, the full range of constitutional protections that everyone else has. And so in that, to that extent, I think it'll have a very far reach in that it makes clear that no matter what profession you're in, you're entitled to the same constitutional protections as everyone else. So the First Amendment protects the right to speak and the right not to speak. Uh, it, it forbids the, uh, uh, the forcing of uh, the state-prescribed notices in large font, undermining the mission of the pregnancy center's um, and it's uh, it's a good day for California for pregnancy resource centers and certainly uh, could have an impact on other uh, challenges moving forward. That's correct. I think that's well said. Well, I know Alliance Defending Freedom has been involved in these cases. And for listeners who um, who want to support your work or may have a, a case uh, worth considering, what's the best way for them to be in touch, to follow what you do and, and to I would encourage to support uh, your efforts? Sure. Yeah. Anyone who's interested in what we're up to can check out our website uh, at adflegal.org. Again, that's adflegal.org. And they can find information about the cases we're filing if they need to get in touch with us because they think they have a potential case. There's information on that. And also, if they if they want to support us, there's, there's uh, links to do that as well. Well, once again, I thank you so much for talking with us today and to help us better understand what the Supreme Court has announced over the last couple of days. Thank you. My pleasure. Again, Jim uh, Campbell is senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. The opinion, by the way, states that the dangers associated with content-based regulations of speech are also present in the context of professional speech. As with other kinds of speech regulating the content, uh, or rather other kinds of uh, speech regulating the content of professional speech poses the inherent risk that the government seeks not to advance a legitimate regulatory goal, but to suppress unpopular ideas or information. Take medicine, for example. Doctors help patients make deeply personal decisions, and their candor is crucial. Throughout history, governments have manipulated the content of doctor-patient discourse to increase state power and suppress minorities. Justice Thomas notes that professional disagreements about the efficacy of professional service cannot be used to suppress speech. 
When the government polices the content of professional speech, it can fail to preserve an uninhibited marketplace of ideas in which truth will ultimately prevail. Professionals might have a host of good faith disagreements, uh, both with each other and with the government, on many topics in this respective fields. Doctors and nurses might disagree about the ethics of assisted suicide or the benefits of medical marijuana. Lawyers and marriage counselors might disagree about the prudence of uh, prenuptial agreements or the wisdom of divorce. The best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. And the people lose when the government is the one deciding which ideas should prevail. Again, Justice Thompson, Thomas. All right, coming up, we're going to talk with Larry Gadbaugh. We're going to talk about the practical implications for Pregnancy Resource Center, certainly in California, but here at home as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as we mentioned earlier, the Supreme Court ruled uh, today in favor of pro-life crisis pregnancy centers that counsel pregnant women to make choices other than abortion. That invalidated a California law that required them to prominently post information on how to obtain a state-funded abortion. The court, in their 5-4 ruling, said that the state law likely violated the First Amendment. The court also cast doubt on similar laws in Hawaii and Illinois. Well, how will this impact the pregnancy resource centers here in the Portland metro area, for that matter, all across the state of Oregon? Larry Gadbaugh is the CEO of First Image uh, and oversees the pregnancy resource centers in the Portland metro area. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. First of all, your impression on the, of the Supreme Court decision that was announced today? Well, we're very thankful, so thankful for all of the centers across the United States, including those in Oregon and certainly us here in in, uh, in Portland, uh, for this ruling. We had some some basis of optimism based on, uh, you know, the the stories and, and reports uh, from the hearings uh, some months back, but you never you never know how it's going to turn out. So we are uh, we're just thrilled with this uh, reinforcement, both of our freedom of speech, mm-hmm. but most of all, uh, to continue to, to uh, be able to serve the women and their unborn children, the families, uh, in an unhindered way without, you know, undergoing this kind of inquisition, you know, from the state. As I was speaking with Jim Campbell from Alliance Defending Freedom, he pointed out that um, this uh, this challenge um, may not be the final challenge to the work of the pregnancy resource centers. Um, and I know that here in the state of Oregon, there have been efforts to undermine um, your work. For listeners who aren't familiar with the pregnancy resource centers here in our community, tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, and again, the fact that you don't receive any public money. These are nonprofit organizations uh, that serve our community, that serve the women and children in our community uh, without any um, uh, public money. Yeah, we're an out. We're a faith-based uh, outreach to serve uh, women, especially those facing unplanned pregnancies. And uh, most of those coming into our centers uh, are ambivalent, uh, scared, confused. Some of them are pressured. Uh, some of them uh, are feeling forced to uh, in a certain direction. And when they come into our centers, they they meet our staff and our volunteers. Uh, who show them compassion and acceptance, and, and we love them and care for them, and uh, and and we educate them about uh, their pregnancy. We educate them about uh, the the options, that, and we 
connect them with resources. We give them every resource that uh, we're able to, to give them every reason to uh, carry their child to term uh, and, and to avoid the, the, uh, um, the, the, uh, the word here, you know, to avoid the regret of, of an abortion. And, but even, no matter what they decide, we care for them and, uh, and they know that, uh, that they're going to be helped. Yeah, it's a, it's well, a, a wonderful ministry. Please go ahead. Well, as you're going to say, you know, they get three pregnancy tests, uh, and uh, we, we were able to give them uh, ultrasounds by trained, uh, certified uh, medical staff. And uh, we find that nine out of ten of those who see the uh, see their baby on on the ultrasound, nine out of ten of them choose to carry their baby to term. Which is, I imagine, part of the motivation for trying to hinder the work of the pregnancy resource centers in uh, California as well as in other places across the country. Now, I mentioned that the the court cast some doubt on similar laws in Hawaii and Illinois, so there may be some relief in those states as well. Uh, and uh, I know that you and other pregnancy resource centers across the country will continue to be vigilant in uh, watching for any efforts to undermine the effectiveness of your work during legislative sessions. But I'm I'm thrilled uh, that this this round, this time around, the Supreme Court made the right decision and that uh, the centers in California and most likely in other places across the country are not going to have to face this particular challenge moving forward. Yeah, it's wonderful. I know that Alliance Defending Freedom, who has helped us out in the three attempts to uh, instigate bills against pregnancy resource centers in in Oregon, uh, that you know drug us into <laughs> that arena. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom has been one of those key resources to, to give us counsel on how to mm-hmm. how to communicate with our state uh, representatives and senators. To, to show them the good, uh, the good that our centers are doing for the community and for the state. Now, how can we pray for the pregnancy resource centers here and across the country as you continue to do great work in serving women and children? Well, we, we desperately need your prayers because uh, it takes God's wisdom. It takes God's provision and the, and the mobilization of God's people uh, to to live out our compassion for our neighbors who are facing these kinds of situations. Uh, you know, the dominant voice of the culture uh, of all the major institutions is to promote, um, is to promote abortion. And, um, and so we are one of the very few voices that would give alternatives to that. And that would, that would appeal and kind of awaken the life giving conscience of, of people uh, when they're facing these things, and, and that's what we find when they're given the education, when they're given the care and support, they rise up in their courage and their and their love for their own children uh, to move forward with their pregnancy. So prayer for us is is absolutely essential uh, to continue to be educated yourself, so that um, uh, and you know uh, there's so many resources you can go to our website first dash image uh, first dash image dot org. Um, and uh, there's some resources listed there, and get educated, uh, encourage your church to be aware of these things, because the, the, our whole ministry is rooted in the gospel, the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. 
because where every one of us is created in God's image, and we believe that about every every person conceived. And so loving our neighbor means uh, speaking the truth in love and offering uh, the help of Christ for our neighbors who are facing these difficult situations. Well, I want to thank you and the staff and volunteers of the Pregnancy Resource Centers of the Greater Portland area, and for that matter, PRCs all across the state of uh, states of Oregon and Washington for your great work, and uh, congratulate you on on this particular case. And we will commit to praying uh, for the uh, the ongoing work without hindrance. Larry Gadbaugh, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you, Georgine. Appreciate it very much. It's such a Sweet, sweet man and great ministry. I wanted to mention uh, one other Supreme Court case that you may not have followed. It was another 5-4 decision. The uh, U.S. Supreme Court gave a victory to privacy advocates on Friday, that's last week, ruling that police generally have to have permission from a judge before they can get cell phone records to plot the movements of individual customers. Well, that decision requires police departments nationwide to get a search warrant in order to obtain Uh, telephone company data to track where a user has been. The technique is widespread given that 95% of Americans own a cell phone and many of our vehicles also have that kind of uh, GPS technology as well. Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote the court's opinion, said a phone goes wherever its owner goes, conveying to the wireless carrier not just dialed digits, but a detailed and comprehensive record of a person's movements. If you watch Uh, television programs, you always uh, see that they solve the crime by determining where, in fact, the individual was as compared to where they said they were going to be. Well, Justice Roberts was joined by the court's four liberals, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, Justice Anthony Kennedy, and the court's three conservatives dissented. Uh, When uh, used for uh, calls or texts, a cell phone signals a nearby antenna tower to connect with the telephone network. And as the user travels, the call is handed off to successive towers. And the cell phone companies keep records of the phone numbers routed through each tower to sort out the uh, uh, roaming charges. So that information is collected and kept and can be used by law enforcement. Mapping which towers were used by a given phone number, the police can reconstruct a person's whereabouts over days, weeks, and even months. So Friday's ruling said that police can still get cell phone records without a warrant in uh, emergencies as the need to pursue a fleeing suspect, protect individuals who are threatened with imminent harm, prevent the imminent destruction of evidence, and so on. But if they are trying to determine, uh, as uh, the um, defendant in a case, where you may have been, they have to uh, acquire a warrant in that case, this ends the session, the, the season of the Supreme Court, and they'll start up again, I suppose, in the uh, in the near future. But they have the summer uh, the summer off. So that's another of the cases. All right. We're going to take a quick break in just a moment. When we return, I want to share with you a, a, an article that was written by David Limbaugh. Uh, in which he suggests we need to find a balanced solution to immigration and stop the preening. There's a lot of, you know, we have midterm elections coming up. And so uh, taking advantage of one side or the other of the argument has been very divisive. We'll see what he suggests we might do uh, in the intervening months. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
50 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Earlier in the day, we had a conversation with A.J. Zvoboda. He's the co-author of Redeeming How We Talk, Discover How Communication Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationships, and Changes Our Lives. If you didn't have an opportunity to hear that conversation, you can find it at kpdq.com. Check out the podcast where you can hear that and other programs where we discuss other things with other people. We also rebroadcast on our sister station, AM 800, uh, in the evening at 10 o'clock p.m., and so we rerun today's program at that time. So if you want to check that out. But David Limbaugh uh, wrote a piece uh, because so much of our conversation around immigration right now is vitriolic. And he writes, let's find a balanced solution to immigration and stop the preening. Virtue signaling soared to new heights with the family separation issue on the southern border. Too many people, including many well-meaning ones, are leaving their minds at the door with knee-jerk responses to media hype. No, I'm not just saying there wasn't a real problem with separating children from their parents on the border, and I'm not saying I was indifferent to this matter. Quite the opposite. But I am surprised that people can get worked up to a mob-like frenzy if the media and certain politicians stoke things enough, and if they are feeling strong peer pressure to oversimplify issues and join stern moral rebukes of anyone who even raises questions. One reason the framers incorporated checks and balances into our Constitution is to prevent government from being overly reactive and moving too quickly. Not that there wasn't warrant ex- um, Uh, warranted expectations to that rule. It's striking that people can become hysterical over a gradually developing problem. Donald Trump ran and was elected on an immigration enforcement platform. He promised stringent uh, border enforcement centered on the building of a wall. If he has a mandate on anything, it's that issue. At the core of Trump's immigration position is his strong commitment to American national sovereignty. As an essential component of that is a a vigorous adherence to the rule of law. Thus, it should have uh, been no surprise when Trump Trump's attorney general issued a zero tolerance policy concerning border enforcement. As chief executive officer of the United States, why wouldn't this border hawk formally reverse a reckless policy that pulverizes the rule of law? That he even needed Jeff Sessions to issue such an order is a testament to the degree to which we've abandoned the rule of law from laxity on the border to sanctuary cities. One problem with being a policy slave to one's emotions is that it clouds one's judgment to the ramifications of precipitous government action. Did those clamoring for Trump's immediate reversal of Sessions' order to enforce the law consider or care that our cynical non-enforcement is what largely led to the crisis we've been witnessing on the border. Isn't it obvious that the government's known ambivalence to border enforcement has incentivized migration to the United States, which inarguably includes terrorists, gang members, and other criminals who have no interest in assimilating? In all their moral preening, do they really believe America can or should absorb unlimited numbers with no restrictions at all? We used to have a national consensus that immigration should be an orderly process, closely regulated to ensure that applicants demonstrate their genuine desire to become a part of America, embracing its ideals and pledging their commitment to the Constitution. That consensus is now gone. Uh, The Democratic Party and too many Republicans are open border advocates believing, as a logical extension of the policies they support, albeit not outright, that this nation has no moral or sovereign right to control its borders. That is astounding. If you love this nation and its founding ideals, how could you possibly endorse open borders, which would eventually destroy the nation if far uh, if for no other reason than uncontrolled immigration guarantees 
in, dis- in uh, disintegration of the American compact. But when advocates of border enforcement make these arguments, they are met immediately with catcalls of nativism and racism or some perverse brand of nationalism. Open borders zealots have even turned the idea of patriotism into a dirty word as a code for racism. The glaring irony is that our unique constitutional system and the values undergirding it produce the very freedom and prosperity that have always drawn immigrants to this nation. Don't even get me started on the Democratic Party's cynical attempt to fast-track amnesty to add a new class of people to its voting rolls. As with African Americans, it has convinced many Hispanic immigrants that Republicans hate them as opposed to revering our national sovereignty and the rule of law. It's undeniable that uh, leaders exploited this issue for political gain. If the children were their primary concern, they would join with Republicans in enforcing the border and thereby de-incentivizing caravans of people migrating toward our border. Moreover, instead of blaming President Trump, they would acknowledge that it is the parents and fake parents who are the principal culprits, for if they had complied with the law and the proper immigration processes, these children would not have been separated from them except in justifiable cases. Most significantly, they would be have applauded the president for finally yielding to their demands and issuing an executive order saying that children will not be separated from their parents pending review of their parents' cases. But as soon as Trump signed the order, his critics moved to the next demagogic a Trump-bashing phrase, excoriating him for keeping both the parents and the children in detention. In other words, Trump has flushed them out. It wasn't about children. Their purpose in browbeating Trump beyond the obvious one, politically damaging him, is to push back to catch and release, which rewards those who jump the line and illegally enter our country with practical immunity. This should be a lesson to Republicans, snowed by Democrats in the media into becoming part of the mob. Democrats have had endless chances to show their good faith, but would prefer until they uh, can, consure, can secure a blanket amnesty for up to 20 million new Democratic voters to reverse this issue for maximum political gain. I dare say that the lax enforcement policies the Democrats want to restore would be more destructive to children in the long run, both immigrant children and American children, the latter of whom would eventually be disin, uh, disinherited from the blessings we've enjoyed as citizens of the greatest nation ever conceived. I pray that we approach the entire immigration issue with sobriety prudence and compassion, weighing all factors and producing a solution that honors the constitutional, the constitution rather, and rule of law and minimizes harm to children, domestic and foreign, both in the present and in the future. Again, calling for a uh, a solution to immigration and an end to preening, which we've seen far too much of. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Amy Lynn Nelson. She's the author of It Matters, Looking for the Good Things in Life. And on Thursday, Linda Wright, she's the editor of uh, Romance of a Protestant Nun, One Woman Surprised by Love. And for those of you who are familiar with... um, uh, with Pamela Reeve. This is her last book. She has since passed away, and it was uh, compiled and edited by her uh, longtime friend, Linda Wright. And we're going to talk about her uh, her parting words, if you will, in uh, anticipating the end of her life. She is one of my favorite authors. Uh, Pamela Reeve uh, was one of my favorite authors. I have several of her books. She's a poet. She's uh, just writes beautifully about subjects of, of great uh, import. And uh, she, of course, was uh, associated with the, uh, the seminary, just a, a woman of great uh, intellect and creativity. She wrote prose and poetry and just uh, wonderful books challenging us to walk and to, tr- to walk with God and to trust him more deeply. So I'm looking forward to that conversation 
um, on Thursday. In the meantime, we're going to try to cover the the, uh, news as it emerges. There's so much going on right now, it's difficult to cover it all. Uh, The uh, ongoing investigation into whether or not there was um, uh, Russian interference in our elections, whether or not uh, there was collusion on the part of the administration, whether or not the FBI and uh, other intelligence agencies infiltrated a political campaign to influence it in favor of another political campaign. All of that is swirling around, and there's there are lots of names and individuals whose uh, reputations um, have been called into question. I'm not going to go into all of those details. I'll try to cover perhaps the broader strokes um, until we have a, a clear understanding of, of what has happened, if that will ever uh, be the case. Uh, but again, um, want to avoid uh, preening and try to have a better understanding of these issues um, and not necessarily in favor of one side or the other. But hopefully we can arrive at some point at the truth, although I'm beginning to think that's less likely than it perhaps was uh, hoped for in the beginning. Anyway, we'll try to cover all of that as the uh, debates continue. I want to thank Chris Williams for engineering today's program and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Again, tomorrow we'll talk with Amy Lynn Nelson. It matters. Looking for the good things in life. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.